Hello and welcome to another episode of GDPR Now, our podcast dedicated to all things related to data privacy and data security with all sorts of technology in between. Your host today is me, Karen Heaton, owner of Data Protection for Business, recording from my home office in Southwest London. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the Age Check Certification Scheme. Now, this is a scheme that's recently been approved by the ICO, and it's a first. And so today I'm absolutely delighted to introduce Tony Allen, who's the CEO of the Age Check Certification Scheme, who was obviously involved in bringing this to approval status with the ICO. So Tony has over 25 years of experience of working in trading standards. He was a chartered trading standards practitioner, a a term I hadn't heard until about 20 minutes ago. Uh, He was also the chair of the government expert panel on age restrictions. And to top it off, Tony wrote a book on the law of age restricted sales in England and Wales. So I think we're in very safe hands today. And Tony, thank you for joining us. Hello, Karen. Thank you for having me along. Okay, so would you like to tell us about your business and the work that you've done to get this age check certification scheme approved with the ICO? Yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, I, as uh, Karen says, I'm the uh, chief executive of the age check certification scheme. We're an independent third party accredited certification scheme. Our role is to test the identity and age check systems work. We are not a provider of any age check systems. We don't provide age verification. We don't provide any of the services. Our role is to independently test and check that they work. And what we've been doing uh, over the course of the last uh, almost 18 months now, working with the Information Commissioner's Office, is on putting that through the requirements in GDPR uh, for certification schemes. We're the first in Europe to reach a complete approval of that. So it's been a battle both with the ICO, but also with just being a pathfinder and understanding what the requirements are and all those sorts of things. But the outcome of that is that we have a fully approved certification scheme available for businesses within our sectors. And we'll talk a bit more about what that means. In fact, we've got two. We've not just got one. We've got two. One is the identity and age assurance certification part. And the second bit is age appropriate design. I can talk about both those two different schemes that have been approved by the ICO. Well, well, let's do that, first and foremost. What are the differences between those two schemes? They sound broadly similar, but obviously, clearly, there there must be quite a few differences in them. It's really around the scope of the schemes. So the first scheme we have, which is the Age and Identity Assurance Marketplace. So these are providers of age and identity checking services. So there'll be things like doing your age verification or age estimation or putting a picture of your passport or face analysis, all of those sorts of companies. Uh, Lots of data protection and privacy issues are associated with that. And so that scheme focuses on them as the client base. So that's more about the, the way in which they work. Whereas the age appropriate design scheme is about how you design your own information society service to provide materials where those materials or service or content are likely to be accessed by children. So that's more aimed at uh, companies like gaming companies, education technology, social media, search platforms, community clubs, all of those sorts of organizations that have sites that are likely to be accessed by children. So that scheme focuses on how you handle children's data in a way which is appropriate for the age 
and provides appropriate protections and, uh, and welfare and safeguards for handling that children's, children's data. So two distinct and separate schemes with two different audiences, but both really relating to age and age assurance and age-appropriate um, activities. Okay, so is it possible then that there could be a platform out there that would need both these schemes? So they would that the platform would actually do the, do an age verification function so that only appropriate individuals are on the platform. And then even once they've got through that first sort of gate, they then have to have the uh, age certification scheme on top of that, or have I not quite understood? It is possible that the that both schemes would apply, but the, it's written in such a way that they're complementary, so you wouldn't have to go through two separate audits. It would be all built within one. But one of the 15 aspects of the Age Appropriate Design Code relates to age assurance. That may well be that the appropriate way that the Information Society Service has decided to do age assurance is by doing it itself and doing it in-house, in which case the age assurance bits of the scheme would then apply to them as well. Actually, the vast majority of things that we have seen that where they're going to do age assurance through verification, they're not doing it themselves. They're outsourcing it to third-party companies. Uh, where they're just doing checkboxes or tick boxes, what we call zero assurance, they may well do that themselves, but they may well find that that's actually not going to be sufficiently strong for the compliance with the age-appropriate design code. Okay, that's interesting. So two things then. One, it's interesting you're talking about the age verification uh, functions or software that different people build. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of them, but I've done a couple of podcasts on decentralized credential management. And I'm hoping, we're, we're, I think everybody's hoping that in the future, those are the tools that will be used to verify ages in a more privacy enhancing and secure way. So that's interesting to hear that. And then the the other point I, want, I would like you to help explain to our listeners is how do these schemes in the wider framework of regulation? So within the ICO in particular, obviously we've got GDPR at the top. How, how do they interlink with the ICO's code of practice? Would you, If you could explain that, that would be great. Yeah, so the ICO is the regulator and they're responsible for enforcing the legislation. They are bound by what's called the regulator's code. And the regulator's code requires the regulator to take into account what the regulator's code calls earned recognition. So earned recognition is any process that you've gone through as a business, which has got sufficient credibility and support to mitigate the fact that you may have committed a crime or, or, or committed a breach of, a, of the legislation that the regulator has enforced. And one of the key things that is part of earned recognition is third party certification. So going through a process of certification, going through, and that certification itself being accredited by UCAS as the government's accreditation service, and having been approved by the ICO uh, under Article 42, which is part of um, GDPR, which gives ICO power to approve certification schemes. Okay. That means that if you've gone through that certification and you have a certificate of conformity for your service, that gives the highest possible weight to that earned recognition from the regulator. Now, what it doesn't do is it doesn't give you a free pass. If you commit a breach or you commit a, a crime uh, under the data protection legislation, the ICO still have to enforce that. But what it means is that uh, they'll take into account the fact that you've got certification. So it should give you a much stronger 
mitigation of your actions. And in relation to proactive work by the ICO, uh, where they're going out looking for things, they will look for places that haven't got certification. So they'll be looking at, let's say you've got a choice of people that, have, um, that are providing education technology, uh, ed tech stuff, for instance, and there's half of them have got certification and half of them haven't. The half that haven't will get the attention of the ICO before the half that have. That's interesting. Yeah, very good. So obviously you talked about it being the first official approval. So I'm interested in how you went from zero to getting that. I'm also thinking actually the ICO has been quite busy because there was a, a publication done a week or so ago, which was the first ICO approved explainability notice for AI. So it's feeling to me like they're, you know, they're getting behind some of these uh, initiatives and approving things and, and setting out you know, templates, standards that, that other businesses can look at and, and replicate? Yeah, completely. Uh, I, I think um, what you have to bear in mind is the ICO, although it's a growing organization, is still relatively limited in size. It has got an enormous remit to cover and it can't possibly cover all of that with the staff that it, it has. And so by approving the certification scheme or another, another area they can approve is codes of conduct of things like... Um, trade associations, and they have done a few of those, but that enables them to be able to effectively focus their resources and attention on those ones that aren't members of those schemes. So it enables them to be able to um, take an intelligence-led approach. And so that's why it's important to the ICO, you know, and frankly to taxpayers as well who fund the ICO, that certification is intended for those businesses that want to get it right, want to have the right systems in place, don't want to be spending a lot of time and effort responding to ICO queries and dealing with um, stuff like that. They want to be able to demonstrate that they're conforming. Certification is not intended for companies that couldn't care less about their compliance with data protection. Those are always going to need the regulator and the enforcement side and the powers that the ICO has to deal with those. That it's for companies that are, you know, take it seriously, want to get it right, want to be uh, seen to be compliant. Okay, thank you. That's very clear. Okay, so I noticed also that on your website, etc., you were talking about the work with the UK's DCMS Digital ID Trust Framework. Could you explain a little bit about that, please, and how that fits into the schemes that we're talking about today? Yeah, so, I mean, the UK governments, like a lot of governments around the world, have been trying to grapple with the idea of how you maintain your digital identity and use that digital identity online for multiple services and they, they've you know to be fair to the uk government they've had two or three attempts at this in the past and this is the latest one they're doing a lot of work at the moment on what they call the digital identity trust framework it is similar to what's going on in canada australia uh, new zealand all of them are developing these trust frameworks as well and the concept of it is that you prove your identity once to a trust framework participant and then you're able to use attributes of that or aspects of that to prove other things elsewhere so and that's the decentralized identity then i think we're talking about yes yeah, so that's the idea that you you would be able to prove your identity for your let's say a bank and then you would be able to use your uh, the age from that identity to be able to go into a online gambling platform or, or whatever whatever it is you wanted to do and so the the digital trust framework is based on certification so you would have, there's going to be a governing body. There's no 
announcement yet as to who that governing body is going to be, expecting that imminently. So you as a ID provider would apply to the governing body for initial application. Uh, they will go uh, yes. After doing a little bit of self-assessment, they'll do. They'll go yes. You look like something. Somebody who's ready. You would then come to a certification body, which is which will be us. Will be one of the uh, certification. In fact, we may will be the only certification bodies things stand at the moment. But we expect there'll be more than one. We would then certify them and put them through all of the uh, checks and tests and audits and make sure that they're fit for purpose. And then they would be approved to be part of the trust framework. And then they can join any of the schemes that operate within that. So there's one for banking. There's one for estate agents. There's one for disclosure and barring you know for criminal records checks employment checks there'll be different schemes within and these individual idps can apply to join one or more or whatever their marketplace uh, is but they'll need the certification to be able to do that to get onto these things okay that makes a lot of sense now oh that's really interesting i think especially some startups etc it's good for them to know that because there are platforms out there and apps etc where they do need You've just mentioned that in the property sector, they've got to verify people's ID. They've got to have th- you know three months worth of bank statements or whatever it is. It's you know it's a burden. They've got to keep this information, copies of passports, drivers' licenses, and then they've got to keep it safe. That you know it goes stale. It's not a small thing for businesses to have to do. It's, it's non-trivial, right? There's lots of burdens. There's lots of things about anti-money laundering, about sanctions checks, uh, about unexplained wealth orders. If you're doing any of these kind of things, and you're going to have to comply with all of that. But then there's also what we refer to as the digital footprint. So from a data protection point of view, and the reason why we work so closely with the ICO is we consider the perhaps unintended consequences. So I used an example a bit earlier on where I said you could prove your identity to your bank, and then you could use that record to prove how old you are to access a gambling site. So... Does that create a digital footprint that you gamble? And so therefore, when you come to try to arrange a mortgage with your bank, will they use the fact that your banking information has been used to allow you to access gambling sites as part of their decision making for you getting a mortgage? That's called the digital footprint. And that's potentially the consequences of this single identity, single process is that that digital footprint becomes actually quite a a lot of information about your personal behavior, your personal activities, not all of which you might want to share with other people looking at other things. And so the data protection consequences associated with the trust framework are, are quite complex. Okay. And who's working with the UK DCMS on that digital um, ID trust framework? There is a team in DCMS that uh, that are leading on this. From our perspective, what we're doing with the certification body aspect is working with the UK accreditation service on that as to what that means for us. So we've been doing more audits of us and uh, finished one of those last week to enable us to be a certification body of that. The DCMS are actually, I think it's this week, they've announced the initial trial applicants that they're putting through a process to test the process. They went out and invited um, expressions of interest in, in that. And uh, I think it's this week they're literally starting that tra- trial process. Okay. That's interesting. Very interesting. Thank you for that. Right. Back to 
the age check certification scheme itself then. So for businesses listening to this, let's talk a little bit about the scope and the applicability of the scheme. Obviously, which type of companies and which type of systems and which type of processing activities? Because I had a look through and I think there's sort of a a three-pronged approach to the scope and the applicability. And I'm sure you'll be able to explain a lot more clearly. The the problem with these things is that, you know, I could take up three hours of your uh, podcast trying to go through the pages and pages of scope. Broadly speaking, the age check certification scheme, its scope is relevant to identity and age assurance service providers. So companies that provide that part, that sort of process, the decentralized identity, age assurance, age estimation, neuro-linguistic programming, hand geometry, age verification, passport lookup, all those sorts of services. That's there this in scope for the age check certification scheme bit. The age appropriate design code is the scope of that is any commercial service that is likely to be accessed by children. And it's very important that this is a word likely, not intended to be accessed by children. So those are typically speaking there, you're looking at things like social media, chat, looking at uh, education technology, gaming platforms, social media. You're looking at um, uh, maybe uh, like community clubs, like sports clubs, scout groups. There are some exemptions for non-commercial activities. Schools themselves are not really covered by the code. But if they're using services that are used outside of school, like, for instance, homework apps and parent apps and that sort of thing, then those apps are covered by the code. So there's quite a a complex range of um, of things there in relation to what is and is not uh, covered. So on that example, then, so you've got a school who's using potentially a range of different technologies and those technologies are being used by their by the students and children in their schools i mean surely there's a an obligation by the schools to ensure appropriate due diligence on those technologies and platforms before they ask the students and children to use them yeah completely so that's part of the reason for the certification scheme so the idea is that these apps these ed tech apps become certified and that is the evidence that the school DPOs would need to be able to say we've checked this one out and it's got that certification otherwise they would have to go through and do all the auditing and checking themselves if they're going to get that level of diligence so that really does underline one of the purposes of having this certification scheme in place to really enable people who are procuring or commissioning uh, services to be able to say right where's your evidence that this works and is checked out and uh, has got a, a certificate of approval in the same way as if you were you know, buying a toy, you wouldn't buy a toy as a company. You wouldn't buy, um, if you're buying toys for Argos and some toy manufacturer comes to you and says, we've got this wonderful toy. There's no way that Argos is going to buy that toy unless they see all the safety certificates, all the certification that's been tested, that there's hasn't got lead in it and all that sort of stuff. That's part of the due diligence of any company that is um, that is operating this stuff. Okay, that's that's interesting. I think you've kind of covered this already in a way, you know, the benefits of being part of the scheme. I mean, you've already touched on some of them. Are there any others you can think of that you haven't yet touched on? I mean, certainly, you know, what I've heard from you is, you know, obviously establishing trust in your consumers and procurement bodies, avoiding future issues with the ICO or potentially, I don't know, investors 
Yeah, in terms of benefits, there are obviously the ones in relation to the external benefits of how you demonstrate your product is compliant, either to regulators or to people that buy your product. There's also a series of internal benefits as well. Whenever you go through an audit, people think audits are painful and there's you know, there's a lot of um, work with it. They're not that painful because we work very carefully through them with the client. But it helps to internally to consider things. It helps to consider things that you within your company might not have even thought about because the auditors bring in their experience of looking at multiple different companies. Obviously, we we can't talk about what one company does versus another company, but we can talk in general terms about the experience. The great thing about auditors and our team is they have the annoying habit of pointing out the bleeding obvious that you hadn't spotted in your own system, <laughs> which is really helpful because they're going to point that they will point something out that either a regulator would spot or a journalist would spot. Yeah, we had a case the other week where um, they had a privacy notice and we were looking at the privacy notice. And they'd listed all the, uh, the reasons why they were using uh, people's data. And they'd referred to uh, legitimate interest um, as being one of their lawful bases for processing. But then they hadn't listed that on the summary. So they, they did a summary of the uh, privacy notice, but they hadn't listed that they'd missed it. off. Just a typo, but they'd missed it off there. So the summary bit, which is what you actually saw, didn't have it on, but their actual lawful basis for processing was that it's just there was no nothing improper about what they were doing it was a perfectly uh, legitimate reason they just not spotted that that was there and that's the sort of thing that audience has really helped to uh, to pick up on uh, so i think those internal and external benefits um are clear there are other benefits about your kind of perception in the world in terms of you know being a, an approved or certified the brand uh, i think trust and confidence in what you do and I also think if you're wanting to sell your product into a big multinational service, we've been working with a, a number of international social media or um, search facilities. More and more, they are saying, right, where's your evidence of conformity? We're not going to allow you to connect to our services unless you can bring us some evidence of conformity because you know, after the Cambridge Analytica thing and stuff like that went on, they're very nervous about allowing people to connect into their systems and they want to see real objective evidence that it's been checked and tested and is okay. Good. Well, that's very pleased to hear that. I often have a look, there's often some tension between some of my clients and the technology providers they use to get them to understand what their data protection responsibilities actually are. So, um, yeah, it's good to hear that. Okay, so we've talked through the what. So how can businesses then engage, you know, how long might a project take? What kind of resources would they need in order to go through it? Yeah, how, how can they go from... I mean, the certification scheme is not necessarily about getting you to do anything new. It's about checking what you do already. So it's, it, it's not resource intensive in the sense that you've got a whole new load of stuff you, you've got to do. Everything that's in the certification is all things you should be doing anyway. And we, whilst we can't, because uh, we're not allowed to mark our own work, so we can't tell you exactly what it is that they have to do. What we can do is we've got a series of conformity advisors that are independent of us. So if someone's coming to us and like, I'm not sure when I've got it all, we can put them in touch with a, an advisor who can then talk to them independently of us and direct relationship with them, not with us sort of help understand that 
I think in our experience, though, just a few tips I would give clients when they first come. We get various different ones. So when they come along and we ask them a couple of questions, like, for instance, have you done a DPIA? And if the answer is, what's a DPIA? That's usually a fairly good indication that there's a little way to go. So data protection impact assessments. But I would say these are the kind of tips I would give. First of all, your privacy notice. Don't get it written by a lawyer. (laughs) My head is nodding vigorously, much as though I like lawyers, but (laughs) it doesn't reflect what the business does. Make sure it reflects what your business does. Don't download a privacy notice from Google and put your name on the top of it and then expect that to be compliant. So that will be one of the first things. And write your privacy notice. I would always say, make sure your privacy notice covers things, but write your privacy notice in the way that you would market your company. So to think about the audience, think about who's going to read it and, and write it to them. And yes, get it checked, get it checked by a lawyer, but don't ask a lawyer to write it in the first place would be a tip. The second tip, and this is a real benefit, I think, of the ICO. The ICO have got some really brilliant resources online on their website, uh, one of which is called the Accountability Toolkit. Oh, I've seen that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Although the Accountability Toolkit is a self-assessment, it's a series of things. What it does is it takes you through a step-by-step consideration of what you might need in your business for what you do. It's actually really, really good. It'll prompt to you. uh, It'll take you through whether you need a DPO, for instance. It'll take you through whether or not you need to carry out a legitimate impact, a a legitimate interest assessment. It'll take you through all those things. By the end of it, you will have a very clear idea of what your kind of data protection system will need to look like. So that's the second tip. I would, and the, the, my, my third tip would be, if, particularly if you're doing the age-appropriate design, put children at the centre of your, the, the, your process. Think about putting a child in the middle. What is that child trying to do? What are they seeking to do? What is it their experience of using your system? Put them centre to it. And don't make assumptions about what they may want to do or may have to do. Just treat them with dignity, respect, look after them, make sure that they have got the access to be able to control their how their data is being used. And, you know, all those fundamentally, don't exploit them. Yeah, the rest will follow, won't it? Yeah. Well, that, they're really good tips, actually, Tony. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. If you've done those three things, broadly speaking, you will sail through a certification process. Okay. Well, that sounds good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then finally, maybe just to wrap up on some of the ISO codes. So I was reading that in your informative guide, the ISO 17065. Right. An ISO standard I'd never heard of, which may not be that surprising, but it's a conformity assessment. So how does the ISO 17065 fit in with the age check certification scheme and the other certification scheme, the um, age assurance one we were talking about earlier. Yeah, Uh, this is not specific to the protection certification schemes. This is general across all certification schemes. So basically, this is your assurance that the certification scheme is impartial, uh, treats the uh, records confidentially, has got competent uh, auditors, uh, understands their role, and acts appropriately as a certification scheme. In every country of the world, there is a accreditation body, which in the UK is the UK Accreditation Service, that's appointed by government. 
there's a single accreditation service in the UK. Um, Basically, any certification that is out there that hasn't got UCAS accredited status is questionable. I'm not going to say necessarily wrong, but questionable as to how much confidence you can have in that organisation. So getting that UCAS badge of approval effectively from the government that is that your certification scheme is set up properly. ISO 17065 is the rules about how to run a certification scheme. So, you know, rights of appeal, complaints, impartiality mechanisms, appropriate finance and um, insurance and um, liability, uh, having a, a certification agreement and contract between you and the and the client. Uh, all of that is is what 17065 is about. Okay, brilliant. Well, that's excellent. Now, I've learned a lot of things today that I didn't know before we started this conversation. So thank you very much for that. Well, I think that very succinctly has really summarised and explained to myself and hopefully our listeners what the HTEC certification scheme is all about, how it fits into the wider framework, how applicable it is and, and how they can engage with it. So have you got anything else you would like to say before we wrap up on this great session. No, Karen, thanks a lot for uh, coming on, inviting me along to speak. All I would say is we are here to uh, help and support. Visit our website, accscheme.com, and uh, there's a load of questions on, frequently asked questions on there. Uh, but it, just get in touch. And if you're not ready, we can't, obviously, we won't start a certification process with you if you're not ready, but we can put you in touch with people who can assist you um, with that. And uh, if you've got any queries or questions, then just get in touch. And we'll put your details um, on the show notes as well so people can get in touch with you. Um, And if there's any other links that you think would be appropriate, then very happy to put them on as well. So it brings me to say thank you very much, Tony, again, for joining us today. It's been a a great session. I really enjoyed it. So thank you. And um, that brings us to the end of this episode of GDPR Now. And as you've heard, if, you're, if our listeners have got any questions, please email Tony directly. I wish you all the best. And that's it from me for now. Take care and stay safe.